my problem with it is that once you start to breach the autonomy of the artist and the artistic freedom of the artist, the creeping, insidious growth of what I see is that artists are starting to self-censor. I mentor quite a lot of younger artists and work that they might be starting to make in their studio, and particularly if they're postgraduate students, professors um, will come down heavily on some artists about what they're trying to explore. Episode 8. Cancelled. Censorship and self-censorship in the arts. Hello and welcome to Behind the Scenes at the Museum with me, Tiffany Jenkins. For the last 10 years or so, there have been a number of high-profile art censorship cases, either censorship imposed from the state, from above, but also activist groups and even artists on occasion calling for censorship, a kind of bottom-up silencing. In this episode of Behind the Scenes at the Museum, I want to try and get a handle on what's been happening in the world of art censorship, how it perhaps differs from other historical periods, what is and can be done about it and why it really matters. To do that, I've brought together three people with expertise in this area. They all, to a degree, I think, uh, think that art censorship is a problem. So the question here is not for or against in a black and white way, but they have slightly different concerns and perspectives and experiences. They're around the table with me, and I just want them to introduce themselves very briefly Uh, My name is Julia Farrington and I work for Index on Censorship as Associate Arts Producer and I've been looking at censorship and self-censorship in the arts in the UK for about the last 10 years. Uh, My name is Manik Govinda. I'm currently uh, an independent freelance uh, arts consultant, uh, artist mentor and writer. I've worked with uh, a range of contemporary visual artists uh, over the last um, 15 years and I write a lot around free expression and uh, identity politics. Um, I'm JJ Charlesworth. I'm the senior editor at um, Art Review and have uh, worked as a writer on contemporary art for the best part of 20 years now, um, primarily based in London, but uh, looking at uh, what's going on internationally. Okay, well, when I was doing the preparation for this podcast, I did realise there were a number of cases that we wouldn't be able to discuss. I mean, there's been quite a lot, and those are the most obvious ones, let alone ones that that kind of have gone below the radar. So I think it'd be best if we approach this conversation through a number of key examples and themes. The first thing that we want to talk about is state censorship. Julie, can you kick us off by looking at the case of the National Youth Theatre and the play Homegrown? What, what happened there? So what happened was a play was commissioned by the National Youth Theatre to look into, it started off with the three women, three young students going off to Syria from Tower Hamlet. And that was the kind of the trigger of, of wanting to look into behind the headlines of, of what was actually happening. Uh, Nadia Latif directed the play and Omar el Heri wrote it. And two weeks before the show was due to go live, it was cancelled. It was cancelled in an extremely abrupt way. Basically, the creative team got a, an email saying, don't come into work tomorrow beyond just coming to, up to pick up your, your bits and pieces. Um, and effectively, communication with the theatre management kind of broke down from that moment. I absolutely see this falling within the context of state censorship, but everyone will deny that the state intervened on any level. The police deny it, and so do the theatre management. Its own promotional video built it as part of a season of edgy plays. 
homegrown, which explores the motivation of British Muslims who join Islamic State, was promoted in a National Youth Theatre trailer. But now it's been dropped, sparking a row between the theatre and the play's directors. Channel 4 News has spoken to Nadia Latif in her first broadcast interview since the production's cancellation. We've also seen an email that shows the police met with the National Youth Theatre. She claims the theatre became nervous about the controversial subject and pulled the plug. There are a lot of pressures when you make any piece. I think particularly making a piece in the current political climate. Uh, and I think that uh, as a company, uh, they capitulated. Earlier this year, three schoolgirls left Bethnal Green in East London and travelled to Syria to live under Islamic State rule. Homegrown was meant to be performed in a school near their homes. Following an intervention from Tower Hamlets Council, it was moved. A new venue was found in North London, but then the play was axed. The National Youth Theatre insists the project was shut down because of concerns over its quality, not because of the subject matter. But there's a third party in this confusing tale, and that's the police. Nadia believes a meeting between the police and the National Youth Theatre was partly what led it to cancel her play. When I heard about it, the reason for cancellation given in the media was that was one of quality, which I had to say I did laugh at the time because very little conversations happen in the arts about quality. And so I did suspect something odd had happened. There. Yes, I mean, I think quality was used as a reason that people could possibly latch on to um, as to why this might be cancelled. But I think that if it had been treating a different subject, for instance, if they'd been concerned about the quality of a, of a new reading of Alice in Wonderland, they would have worked extremely hard and put lots of resources in to make sure that it could have been made ready in time. I think what was really problematic about this was the nature of the narrative. I think the narrative was falling outside what the state has put out very clearly through its prevent program that, you know, Muslims Muslim people are a problem. They they are either vulnerable or violent, and any artwork that doesn't reinforce either the vulnerability of, of young people who need to be sort of protected from themselves and others, or violent people who will who are a threat to to security in this country. I think what was very very clear, um, and you know, openly they were saying we want to to challenge that narrative and actually put forward some sort of less comfortable interpretations. Can you just? Tell us a little bit about the Prevent Programme. The Prevent Programme, well, it's been going for a very long time. It was actually introduced under the um, uh, new Labour government. But um, in sort of later iterations, particularly 2015, something called the Prevent Duty was introduced, which is um, a duty that requires people working in education, uh, social services and the National Health Service to undergo some training, which will give them an insight into signs of radicalization. And then if you feel that anybody, any young person that you're dealing with is showing signs, then you have to report it. It's, it's actually statutory. You have to report it to the police. What's interesting about that is the arts is not one of those sectors that falls under prevent duty. But I think what we've seen is different ways in which um, what happens in the arts sector is falling into the sort of prevent scheme. Manik, can you talk us through a related example, I think, the one at the Mall Galleries, ISIS Threaten Sylvania? Sylvanian family. Sylvania family. Yes. Yeah. Um, so you're, the dolls that the Islamic kids... State uh, threatens uh, the, the, the peaceful, charming idyll of, uh, uh, of uh, Sylvanian life. Uh, so what the artist Mimsy, having come out now as uh, Miriam Alia, 
what she did um, was under the uh, pseudonym of Mimsy um, creates a, a series of tableaus uh, for an exhibition, uh, the Passion for Freedom exhibition that, that took place at the Mole Galleries, so a hired gallery space rather than a curated space in central London. And um, So 2015, two I think. Yeah, yeah. 2015. And um, so uh, Sylvanian Families was uh, a series of images, quite innocent looking, but uh, uh, in a sense, you know, uh, everyday life disrupted uh, in this world of Sylvania uh, by um, terrorists, by Islamic State. So these little... So they were dull terrorists. Dull dull terrorists, yeah. Little mice in balaclavas, dressed in black, waving the uh, Islamic State flag, um, uh, hovering in the background with AK-47s and Kalashnikovs. Um, uh, Pretty much about to, you know, just... um, uh, 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 in preparation for something, so on, on one level, it's it's satirical. It's very funny. Uh, it's 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 because of the incongruity, nuance. really, yeah, of incongruity, mice and yeah, dolls yeah. and terror. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. It's 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 just like a sort of uh, a fairy tale disturbed or something of our contemporary times, you know. And we have to remember, you know, the context of what, why those tablets were created. Um, it was a space of violence, the growth of its uh, Islamic State in in the Middle East, and. Um, and also the, the the attacks that were going on in Europe and uh, elsewhere, so it seems like uh, something that's just ripe for you know humour um, to uh, interject uh, on this uh, on this narrative. Uh, what happens though was that when the exhibition was about to go up, the gallery, the Mole Galleries, um, which again, like I said, was a hired space, um, had some questions about the the safety of its venue and spoke to the curator and um, uh, they consulted the police, I believe. Um, and the police kind of said, well, this is possibly a safety issue and I can't guarantee the safety of the venue and the artworks and possibly the people that are involved in the exhibition. Just on, just on that, it's interesting, this idea of safety. Who is the threat there, mm. do you think? What are they saying? <laughs> I, I'm not saying that there aren't... Yeah, no, no, I mean, there are just, serious just, threats, I mean, the, the, but... So the threat seems to be that, you know, someone may just come in with the the intent to kill or the intent to damage the work. So the police said that they would, uh, they can't guarantee the safety of the the, uh, exhibition and the artists. And it would cost £6,000 a day to have sort of police um, uh, security uh, uh, at the gallery, which would have amounted to something like £36,000 for the duration of the, the exhibition. Yeah. The gallery, I believe, uh, obviously it has a clause where it does have final say in what can and cannot be shown. And most venues tend to do that as a final say. So they said that, I believe they said that they don't want that work because they see it as a, as a risk, as a high-risk exhibit and that the fallback would be down to the curator, an independent curator, and um, she couldn't afford £36,000 just for extra police security and uh, had to pull the, that particular work off the um, the walls. JJ, what do you see is happening here and what are the consequences? What's weird about those two cases is is this kind of second-guessing about what might the worst consequences be uh, if this material was allowed to, to, to continue to be published, essentially to be in public. And of course that, uh, you know, what Julia is pointing to and, uh, and Manica are both pointing to is the fact that there are certain assumptions made about the public, mm-hmm. about certain sections of the public, certain minority groups within the public, assumptions which suggest that those, that those uh, groups or certain groups would somehow be provoked maybe because... 
there are certain things that they find so intolerable that it's legitimate for them to to be provoked and that's the kind of very strange situation because essentially you're you're kind of making very very uh, degrading assumptions about the majority of people uh that they can't cope with their values or cultural icons or 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 or, or, or traditions being put into under critical scrutiny uh, and so there's the really th- th- that is a very chilling thing, but it's also a very demeaning thing because it says there are parts parts of our society who basically have to be treated carefully by the rest of us in quotes. Uh, and I think it's a very serious problem. On on this question, um, particularly around Islamic fundamentalism, are there any lines in terms of freedom of expression that people think should be drawn? Is there a, is there a basis for the authorities' nervousness? I mean, yes, of course, there are acts of violence where where absolutely horrendous crimes are committed and there is plenty of legislation in place to convict that. And, and, And I think that, you know, there needs to be intelligence where you can try and sort of anticipate who might be... Um, particularly at risk, but of of being drawn into violence and so on. So, but I think what's so disturbing is is how wide the net is drawn, how vague how vaguely it's described, and therefore, basically, what what it is in effect is a way to um, haul in any sort of dissent um, of any voice that that really is in, inconvenient to the. And I come back to that word because I think it. You know, we are actually moving into a space where I think convenience is 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 a really Major drive. I mean, I think from from the from the ISIS threat in Sylvania uh, story, basically the the threat was of something that was potentially inflammatory, and on that basis alone of something being potentially inflammatory, you could remove an artwork that lowers the bar so far that yes, of course, you need to have um, people working on 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 counterterrorism. It's it's a serious threat, and we need to take it very very seriously. But we have gone, I believe, way past that mark. Are there any other examples of other shows or music? Well, yes. I mean, I think what what we're seeing sort of happening to drill musicians is actually the blurring of line between terrorist, between, you know, expressions of violence um, and everything getting so easily labelled as extremist. And I think one of the quick ways of sort of putting someone down now is saying, um, you, you know, this is evidence of your extremist agenda. With violent lyrics, references to crime and images of gang culture, drill music and its videos have been criticised for glamorising knife and gun crime. Originating in Chicago, it's now well established in the UK. The most popular MCs get millions of views online. In the past two years, Scotland Yard has asked YouTube to remove around 50 drill videos they say incite violence. Now the video sharing site has removed more than 30. If you have a situation where individuals are putting up videos, taunting other groups, uh, and then causing violence, uh, then that's, it's, a, it's a catalyst. These videos are a catalyst for violence, and YouTube should be doing more to get rid of them to stop that catalyst happening. Raheem Ainsworth-Barton was shot dead at the start of May. He was part of a South London group who'd posted this drill video, thought to be a challenge to a rival group. SK and TK work with drill rappers at their studios in Croydon. They say drill lyrics reflect the lives of the young people and think removing the videos from YouTube won't solve the much bigger underlying problem. Really what we should be thinking about is what's the solutions, what's happening in those communities, why are they rapping about those Yeah, things? and I think that's the key one. Why are they just easily rapping about stabbing another person because that's not normal. In those cases, JJ, what do you think is happening there and what's wrong with it? Well, or is it fine? I think there's a number of things 
which get very blurred in a situation like that. Because the thing is, first of all, I mean, rap, any kind of musical genre, isn't always just about uh, saying that you're going to stab someone to death. I mean, there's quite a lot of other aspects to that music lyrically, which is more generally about uh, urban life for a particular uh, audience group. We, you have to remember that in the 1950s, rock and roll was seen as, <laughs> as often insightful to, to, to kind of uh, violence and, uh, and disorder. And, and there were great panics against rock and roll music in, in the UK and America on precisely its supposedly corrupting and, and dangerous relationship to youth disorder, right? I think what what's, uh, needs to be kind of unpicked in the drill music case recently is it's not clear who's, what power is being brought to what issue. A lot of the reporting that I saw of of the case where YouTube finally agreed to take down, uh, say, 30, 40 videos uh, that had been identified by the Metropolitan Police, under strong pressure, quotes, mm. from the Metropolitan Police, wasn't really clear what the authority of that pressure was uh, and on what grounds that pressure was being applied. Now, there is a, an aspect there which is, I think, quite difficult because obviously if there are videos where you say you're going to kill someone in law that's that will fall under incitement you know if it's if it's evidence of a motive for a criminal to, to carry out a criminal act or to incite other people to do so in which case it should be prosecutable but the the more kind of hazy or sort of muddled aspect of this is not so much that that was what happened but but that really this more kind of subtle and more sort of uh, unspecifiable kind of pressure was was brought simply to take down material on the prejudice no- assumption that there was some direct link and that is the problem really the, also added to that i think is is the fact that really now we're talking about a cultural space where uh, m- public media social media platforms are as corporate entities and it's entirely the case that uh, the terms and conditions which you sign up to as a community member and the community standards of behavior which are imposed by these uh, social media platforms have a high level of discretion uh, and can be applied arbitrarily. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, I think what's happening is you're sort of completely bypassing the judicial system. Yeah. And the police aren't the final arbiters of the law. That should happen in the courts. But what's happening now with increased powers to the police that actually are being sanctioned under the serious crime prevention order, as I say, it is vague. I mean, it's it's hard to say in the, in the, in the media reporting, it's saying these could be applied or will be applied. But I think from a lived experience, they are being applied. And I think what this does is actually point to the pre-criminal space, which is something that, that has been created by Prevent. And it is it is that space where no crime has been committed, but you are considered to be at risk. And so effectively what you say and what you think and God forbid what you express as an artist makes you um, certainly eligible for interrogation. Well, sorry, investigation, um, you know, and, and in some kind of way to be to be well, a police intervention. And 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 so you are sort of criminalized for your thoughts. So we are kind of talking about thought crime. And I think that, you know, when it is when when words are completely divorced from acts in this way, which is what artistic expression is all about. And after all, artists are always drawn to content that is harmful. I mean, that's 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 just always the case. It's it's you know, whether it's sort of suicide or um, you know, violence or, you know, these are these are rich 
subject matter um, for, for artists for, for all time, you know, and then I can do the corny thing of look at Shakespeare. I mean, it's full, it's full of violence, looking at the violent side of, of interaction between people, interaction with society. So I think that criminalizing that space where you start thinking about how you express what's going on around you um, is, 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 is where we're feeling the real pinch from this sort of state-sponsored. And, and, and because, you know, the police are given increasing police powers. So then you start, I mean, without wanting to get completely hysterical about this, is, you know, you start talking about a sort of police state because the police have got these powers that are sort of, it's sort of up to them how they, and, and you know, how they interact because because the, the judicial system, you know, my understanding of the police is that they provide evidence that then gets processed by a system. Oh, mm. And it's that, that there's the really worrying thing about all this stuff. And, 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 and the easy way in which um, the police can sort of remove a piece of artwork. I mean, if you look at, I have never heard a stronger defense of free speech than in the core principles of the policing, where it, um, I think in, under the, the public order section, um, where it says um, that action cannot be taken against someone who is pro- speaking provocatively unless it is absolutely the last it's a sort of test of necessity it's 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 really the expression is really powerful um in other words the police really cannot take action against someone who might be inciting violence in a third party that's 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 a sort of intrinsic part of their sort of core obligations of policing but this seems to be the one thing they seem very happy to to kick over and they can do that because we we're living in a political um, environment which which enables that and then you can really see the difference between law and politics because the law is in place to protect people and we've got human rights legislation but actually if you've got a political environment that is that is that is dismissing those and, and seeing these as an obstacle to security or an obstacle to trade or whatever else then you you can see how 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 the political will is actually affecting um, speech very very clearly you're listening to Behind the Scenes at the Museum with me, Tiffany Jenkins. I'm talking with Julia Farrington from Index on Censorship, the arts consultant Manak Govinda, and J.J. Charlesworth, the art critic and senior editor at Art Review magazine. We're reflecting on the state of art censorship today, and all the cases we discuss are available in our programme notes, so do take a look if you want to find out a little bit more about them. OK, I think we need to uh, move on to our next example and reflect as we go on on some of the points that you've just made. Um, I've sort of termed this section um, minority offence, or I think actually JJ Mm. came up with that. One of the examples that you all mentioned was Exhibit B, which uh, I saw in Edinburgh actually before it went to the Barbican where it was taken down or it was called to an end. A controversial art exhibition was closed on its opening night this week after protesters called it racist. The show, Exhibit B, was being staged by London's Barbican Arts Centre and included some black performers who were depicted as slaves in chains and iron masks. Well, the protesters say it's an outrageous act of complicit racism. This is Exhibit B when it was shown in Edinburgh earlier this year. It draws on the so-called human zoos of the 19th century where slaves were displayed as curiosities. The artist says his work forces us to confront racism then 
and now. I take uh, colonial history, I take the atrocities that were committed under colonialism, right from the beginning of the 19th century all the way up until the liberation in the 1950s, 1960s. And then I look at the residues of racism or the racism we're still living with today. But those opposed to the work say it's complicit in the racism it's meant to be challenging. It's actually quite rude in 2014 that an institute like the Barbican thinks that putting black people in cages is challenging art and it's, um, it's important work for London. I keep saying to them, who is it important for? This is the art of offence. The white South African artist Brett Bailey there talking about his work Exhibit B together with a campaigner Sarah Myers. Her petition calling for the cancellation of Exhibit B gained tremendous momentum. It was followed and accompanied by protests that led the Barbican to close the work. Exhibit B then travelled to Paris where it was performed, guarded by riot police. I think they said it was an exercise in white racial yeah. privilege. White white supremacy. But we should also point out privilege. that the actors involved were black. The black actors are not puppets. They they are uh, active agents and they, they believed in the work and uh, some of them defended the work when it was pulled by the Barbican and um, pulled under pressure. When you went to see it in Paris, can you just give us a sense of what it was like going to it and what you thought of the performance? Yeah. I didn't get to see it uh, in London because uh, it was stopped. So I did get to see it in Paris, uh, where it was defended to the hilt by the state. Incredible. It was pretty much riot police protected. Hundreds of police around the museum. Um, Airport-style security to enter the space. Um, yes, and I'd never been to you know, any, any art projects like that. But once I was actually in the space to see the work. You know, it's just my rational instinct is to kind of feel that, you know, this is a performance. Um, some of it was very moving, actually. You know, you, you do get emotionally drawn into the piece. You do feel uncomfortable at times. Uh, but also, you know, in a sort of Brechtian sense, you are kind of keeping your sense of distance on it. And you are reading as per, like, what museum labels, you know, interpretation panels would be. This is what the context is of the atrocity of, you know, uh, the Belgian Empire in the Congo, for example. And, you know, it's, it is a tro it's, it's visceral atrocity in that mm. sense, but you're not seeing it, you're imagining it. And uh, what you have are the subjects uh, as exhibits. But then there's nothing, there's no over-dramatisation of uh, the violence. You, no, you know, no, it's all, it's all yeah. kind of heavy presence, isn't yes, it? I mean, it for is. me, I, mm. y you go around and they, the, the people on the pedestals... Um, look you directly in the eye That's so right. you do feel complicit um, it's really com it's quite emotionally confrontational mm, mm. so let's JJ let's mm. look at this example and maybe broaden it out a bit what do you think is is this a new type of censorship is this a, is this a new concern I mean I was struck with one of the one of the placards at, uh, in Paris was do not touch my history mm -hmm. don't touch my history you've no mm. right to say anything about this because you're white or you may not have experienced it or whatever it may be sort of links us into discussions around cultural appropriation which have also uh, be, been highlighted in the last few years what's going on there right the the issue of um, having a right to claim a special kind of connection to work to an artwork because of its content is often what motors these protest-led um, close downs 
of, of artworks. I mean, we saw this. It's different to the Isis and Sylvania. It's perhaps a little different also to Homegrown. It's not so much uh, different to, for example, the Saatchi Gallery this year acquiescing to a number of complaints about paintings by an artist uh, called SKU who was being shown there because the paintings contained material which come, is drawn from Islamic culture. And there were complaints that it, it was blasphemous or that the way things were, were presented was blasphemous. Do you know how but, many complaints? Uh, well, this is the thing. You know, that there, it's always that there are a few complaints, but it's more the point that, that more the issue here, and, and particularly with, with Exhibit B, was that it really uh, highlighted uh, quite forcefully the development of a public culture in which uh, cultural groups claim... Uh, against a work on the basis that the artist has no right to speak for them and it is very much it is very much about the entrenchment of a kind of identity politics where expression itself is something which you claim authority of because of your cultural identity and that uh, might even trump because, the artist and it trumps and it trumps the artist even when i think that the artist thinks that they are attempting uh, a form of solidarity. Now, there are two dimensions to Exhibit B. First of all, it, there's the problem that it is about history, about the horror and the brutality of primary European colonialism and its effects on Africa. But this, the, that historical uh, dimension is, is not treated neutrally. It's not treated at a distance. It's actually treated as if, first of all, on one hand, that white people now should feel responsibility and that at the same time black people in britain in 20 in the 2010s uh, should have a close political and emotional and cultural relationship to the legacies of of, of colonialism i mean i think it created very serious like complete double bind for brett bailey because at one level it was attempted as a kind of therapeutic uh, a form of acknowledgement and rec reconciliation an attempt to get white people to think about the issue right and to confront them to try and get white people to think about the history of colonialism and also its presence perhaps in the continuation of of, of inequality and, and also privilege in the current period the, the other aspects of it was this issue of that certain minorities who are spoken about claim the right to speak uh, and, and deny other groups the right to speak about them or for them. It is very similar to what then happened uh, in, the, in New York at the Whitney Biennial in 2017 when a white painter, Dana Schutz, was selected and, and presented a painting called Casket, which was based on a documentary image, a journalistic image of the body of Emmett Till, young man, black man, who was murdered by uh, uh, white racists uh, in in, uh, in 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 fifties in, in the nineteen fifty five. Yeah. Um, and whether the painting is good or bad is neither is not really the issue. The issue was that a, a white artist attempted to make a painting which tried to implicate itself in political comment and cultural comment about racial division and racial violence and injustice, both. Now, and but through the lens of a 
work which goes back to the early days of the civil the, the civil rights movement in the in the U.S. The problem was that because Dana Schutz is a white artist, it very quickly became uh, the point of contention for for a number of uh, uh, commentators and activists, and the the content the subject of an open letter against the work to the Whitney, that because she was because Dana Schutz was white, she had no right to to appropriate the suffering of black people for her own profit and even fun at one point, aesthetic uh, aesthetic fun. And there were the number of, I mean, the claims are, are quite strong, but the key, the key thing is there that, um, for me, in trying to make a gesture of solidarity and fellow feeling, for, for want of a you know, better term, uh, with, with people who, with, with uh, groups who face continued oppression and, and violence, a white artist was told that it wasn't her patch. But I think there are interesting things. So who decides who speaks for what group? I mean, it's interesting with Brett Bailey, the black actors who chose to participate did not have the voice. They were not granted a voice. They were, in a way, silenced. They did not have the legitimate voice. Um, who gets to speak for the group? On what basis? Um, and what are the consequences? Manic, you're... Yeah, I mean, probably underlining a lot of this is, is the kind of um, problems with, I suppose... Um, multiculturalism in a sense, you know, the politics of multiculturalism, where everyone, uh, you know, if we look back from, even from the days of the Rushdie affair, uh, and, you know, that's, you know, called giving offence to other cultures um, um, becomes very much at the forefront that you cannot, you know, uh, be overcritical of uh, of other minority cultures, uh, or, or even, you know, that there has to be some kind of community consultation. So, um, what we're finding so much now, and the Barbicans very much has kind of become this, you know, we w- um, we need to start being more inclusive. Um, so the sort of inclusion policy that's starting to dominate a lot of our institutions, um, meaning that they also have to consult with representatives of those uh, communities um, when there's any potential sensitive work or difficult work or risky work. Uh, and that's for me a bit worrying because I think that does start to um, uh, curb artistic freedom. Uh, I also think it starts to lead to a greater degree of self-censorship, and we're seeing that a lot in young adult fantasy, young, young adult fiction at the moment, where it's almost you know kind of eating its own tail. You mean self-censorship? Yeah, yeah. So sensitivity readers, for example, um, uh, within young adult fiction, uh, particularly, but also. Um, where there's a lot of um, venues now having some kind of consultative group um, that they are uh, because they're too afraid to take to defend their curatorial decisions that they are now sort of starting to fall back on to uh, say, well, you know, um, we we need to speak to the LGBTQ community or we need to speak to the black community or the Asian community about certain works that they um, and that is going to, I think. Um, uh, fatter uh, artistic freedom. Let, let's look at the institutional response a bit. Julia, you, what would you do differently, I suppose, or, or what do you think institutions should be doing? You know, from, from the Barbican's point of view, I, I actually came out quite clearly quite critical of, of, of the Barbican at the time because I feel that, you know, for me, that subject matter does come with kind of a few bells ringing, that this is a highly sensitised issue. Um, and, and I think that whilst there sort of 
immovable support for Brett Bailey and his right to tell this story, which I completely um, support. I think the context in which that story is told and how you manage it as an institution is something that I think that that really crystallised my in, in interest in the role of the institution in managing sensitive material. I think what we're looking at is that... Um, We've, we're sort of working in, a, in an environment in which free expression is not equally distributed across society. So I will say that free expression, as it stands at the moment, is a privilege, not a right. I think there are, there are certain people who find it a great deal easier for, for, for sort of conventional reasons of privilege to access um, the platform. And that is the reality. We are looking at something that is innately unequal. And one of the ways in which um, I think people are responding to that sort of received and historic and culturally entrenched inequality is to try and deny speech and, and, and sort of kick back by suppressing speech. So I think it's, you know, in a way... Whether it's fueled by by the internet, it's fueled by sort of mass um, mass free expression being available through 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 internet, so that everybody can can sort of pitch in, um, and the whole notion of you know who an institution is speaking to has changed because you've got this sort of penetration of the walls, and I think that's absolutely what happened in the Barbican. I think the Barbican was thinking about the value of Exhibit B to its white audience. It hadn't thought that actually this is this is a citadel within a large multicultural environment environment and and other people might hear about it and might have something to say about it. So I think it is sort of really, I think Exhibit B exposed how institutions are now functioning within a, within a world of social media with a sort of another audience that may not see the work, may never have stepped inside the, um, the, the building, but that they have to take them into consideration. So I think that's just a shift, a change that, that institutions are having to, to respond to because that's the reality. Yes, I think there are ways in which the barber could have done could have done things differently, and I think that one of the one of the um, reasons that people felt aggrieved about the the Barbican was they felt that um, that representation of black artists within within the Barbican was was very very poor and if you look at the sort of systemic racism within any sort of cultural organization it's quite easy to point to who's making decisions about what work is made and you know who who determines the value of work and the quality of work and I think that you know if you know these are these are mm-hmm. these are age-old so I think that's sort of involved so I don't see the Involvement of other voices in in a cultural environment, as I could, you could you could argue that's an extension of free expression, not a limitation. But that's, Jay, what do you think? That sounds a bit perverse, though, Julie, because you're saying that free speech relies uh, authentic free speech then relies on a kind of suppression of certain parts of it to produce a dynamic of free speech or something like that. I mean, I think. But do you I, I would, accept, as a critic, do you, do you no, I mean, accept that there, you know, people with power have more speech. They have access to... Well, I, I mean, it would be pretty obvious that large, uh, well-resourced organisations with high level of discretion as to what they present um, from this conversation seem to cave in. So in terms of how much power they have, I'd be a bit sceptical about what we mean by the, the power of organisations. I think really what the issue here What is, about the power of, just to labor this point i think because it, it's made often what about the power of individuals i mean well let's 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 take this point about because we have discussed a number of different cases and and it's probably worth looking at the dynamics in each one let's be clear if we're serious about freedom of expression then uh, drill artists who publish what are effectively music videos right they're not manifestos 
you know, of of, of uh, radicalization or or call to arms. They're music videos, right? Those artists, those musicians, have effectively had their work closed down, right? But nobody squeaked a peep of dissent at the fact that that had happened. And why do you right? think that's the case? Uh, because uh, in the long tradition of uh, state crime and law, law and order panics, uh, it's usually uh, metropolitan black youth who get fingered for for uh, the, re- the relationship between music and crime. You know, so rap, and then before that, reggae, and you know, and it's I only mentioned rock and roll because that was that was the fifties, and that's that's white youth. But the point is that there is always. Um, the idea that they that that is is passed over, whereas the anxieties and sensitivities of say Muslim uh, gallery goers is is taken as the switch to take uh, paintings out of commission out of public view, shows that really there's a there's a high level of of partiality in what's being uh, uh, in how power is being addressed. And it's to, I, th- I think it's for more to do with the fact that we have a cultural narrative that places certain people in certain boxes and expects to react to them in certain ways. So exhibit B is also to do with um, uh, the, uh, the acquiescence to the claims being made. Now for me, as a critic, and coming back to what Julia's just been uh, arguing, my problem is that not that the claims that the protesters against Exhibit B were making were valid or invalid, but that there was no space to uh, argue that or to dispute that, and certainly not no space to allow public debate to talk about whether those claims were real and valid through seeing the work. So that the problem is that not that that we agree or disagree with, say. Uh, arguments uh, that uh, certain um, groups make or certain individuals make that say white people can't speak about black experience, but rather that there is the automatic response is to say, well, then that's that. Then we're not. Nobody's going to see this. It doesn't elaborate or enhance the critical the the, the cultural space. It actually uh, silos it, closes bits of it down according to a certain script about what is acceptable right it's acceptable to say that white audiences should be challenged about their whiteness by artworks that are uh, critical of the legacy of uh, of colonialism for example however young uh, black artists who make music videos and write lyrics about their lives is entirely uh, 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 available as a target for censor Julia, for me, free expression is constantly under threat from from many, many different places. And my, I think that what I'm trying to do, the work that I do, is to understand where those pressures to close down space come from and try and tackle it to keep it as open as possible. I agree that it would have been far preferable to have kept Exhibit B open and, and it should have been. So that's, I agree with that because I think what you do when you cancel something is, is you, just, you just turn the conversation away from whatever the work was about to, whether, to the rights and wrongs of censorship and who was, who was doing what. So, and I think that, that in the case of Dinah Schutz, um, the, uh, 
the, the one at the Whitney. Yeah, the performance artist, was it Parker Bright, who stood in front of the show and I think on the back of his T-shirt he said, Spectacle of Black Violence or Black, black, death, death, black death Spectacle. Mm. Um, and, I th- and, you know, that kind of interactive sort of criticism and he wasn't blocking it from view, but he, it would be difficult not to see him before you went to see it. So the, sh- the, the It could picture- even be part of the work. Exactly, it? and it enhanced it. And so, you know, and it... And I agree that the debate that that sensitive work triggers is the point. So therefore, if you're going to put it on as an institution, how do you make sure that that debate happens rather than the work disappears? I mean, my my problem with it is that once you start to breach the autonomy of the artist, you know, and the artistic freedom of the artist, the creeping insidious growth of what I see is that artists are starting to self-censor they are uh, uh, I mentor quite a lot of younger artists and uh, work that they might be starting to make in their studio and you know particularly if they're uh, postgraduate students and um, you know, some of the um, professors um, will come down heavily on certain artists about what they're trying to explore can you just give us a without I, without giving names obviously because yeah. it's uh, so um, uh, one artist who works uh, very much with um, feminist based work in you know, very much inspired by Angela Carter and that kind of macabre and uh, disturbing aspects of the female imagination, had a piece of work where, you know, she did represent a lot of, um, I suppose, kind of cut pieces of female bodies. And uh, I was told by this artist that um, her tutor, also from another sort of feminist perspective, came down so heavily on her that, you know, pretty much drove her to tears. So you and, think you know, there's, so there's that's a, disagree- where you a political authority. disagreement? Yes, yeah, political disagreement. Within feminism, even you know, and uh, uh, and you know, again, you know, if one's talking about power and authority, you know, obviously a tutor and a professor will have greater power and authority over a, a, an undergrad or you know a young student, uh, and you know, that's when you start to think, you know, where people are going to feel that, oh my god, I can't make this kind of work. Um, I see that a lot in. Um, Again, the sort of um, do you think that's different? The, you know, I'm, I'm interested. In... I think you know, aesthetic freedom is being compromised. Where uh, some people are saying you cannot aestheticize atrocities, for example. So you know, Dana Schutz cannot make aestheticize uh, this death of a, of a young um, African American. Uh, Brett Bailey can't aestheticize um, what happened in colonial um, empire. And then now I'm seeing that you know, an Asian artist who makes work about her coloniality uh, if it's over aestheticized the decolonizing movement are coming down heavily saying that you know you cannot make you can't over aestheticize this history um and that's what i find worrying uh, that uh, it's just opening the doors of greater self-censorship and control over aestheticism so how do you counter that point how do you engage with that i think um, we ha- we should have robust critical debate uh and um that any programming or curating of work that um, should be defended to the hilt by by the uh, the curator or the programmer and not to ignore debates around it um, what I think um, needs to happen across all the art forms at the moment is we have to give the freedom of expression uh, you know that's an absolute right that has to be given maybe that's not in law but you know I think it's a moral right uh, because if not what you are doing is that Within my not within minority groups, and I, you know, regard myself as maybe not the uh, self-appointed voice in, in in the community, but as an individual, once you start opening the doors to community consultation, a lot of self-appointed community leaders start to start to take the take the centre stage on that, and they do not represent uh, the diversity of minority voices. 
Judy, is that something you found? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think that's a real danger with consultation. And I think you do it crudely and badly. You have you, you can really run the risk of people, as you say, self-appointed and, you know, viewing any minority as a homogenous group of people. And, you know, these are real, real pitfalls. But we do know they are pitfalls. And so, therefore, that doesn't mean to say you shouldn't You go that route. I mean, I think what I I sort of feel that... The work is with the institution because I, I sort of think I may be wrong and you've got, you know, you've got these examples of working with, with um, young, young art students and I'm very worried about the degree of censorship that happens in the institution of the art um, college, the art academy. Very, because I think that's where it starts. So you're looking at institutional censorship or an inability to manage, you know, the, the, just the resources required to manage sensitive subjects within institutions sort of... We are living in a highly sensitized environment. You know, it's crazy to sort of assume that that, that doesn't penetrate right the way into the heart of, 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 of cultural organizations. So how do we do that? And I think it's about working with institutions because if institutions are well-resourced, the artists will respond. You know, I think it's the institutions that are squeezing. It's, it's you know, whether it's the police, the arts organizations, the culture institute, everybody's squeezing down on free expression. And the, and the artists will inevitably respond. If the movement is the other way, that we're, we're finding institutions that are trying to keep the space as open as possible, then the artists will have more space. JJ, what are your thoughts on that matter? Something we haven't really put into historical context is how weakly, how weak institutions are when they, cultural institutions are when they come to hold the line on certain cultural or social or moral values. I mean, the, the point being that up until the end of the 1960s, there was a establishment, a cultural establishment, and a state uh, structure, and a consensus that certain things were beyond the pale. So, state censorship of the theatre, of uh, and the quasi-state censorship of, of film and literature. Uh, tended to operate according to what the mainstream and ruling class uh, view of life uh, should be, and that artists who transgressed that you, those, those lines usually ended up in some kind of trouble. Um, but what's really interesting for me is that, in many ways, public life is no longer governed. Ever since the end of the 60s and, and, and the kind of decensorship period, the important, you know, the key mo- pivotal moment towards the end of the 60s and into the 70s. Which was anti-censorship. Which was anti-censorship precisely because it was it was geared towards the conflict between minorities, women, uh, gay and lesbian uh, people, uh, uh, ethnic minorities, everybody who was faced with the, the social order's iniquity against them found that had to take the challenge to society partly through culture and politics uh, but when it was cult- when it was in the sphere of culture and art, uh, they they faced uh, the, the the repression of the of the consensus moral order, and that very clearly demarcated the division between nonconformists and dissenters and people and radicals, and the 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 establishment's power and the state's power. But since then, we've gone through a period which where all those kinds of uh, polarities and those points of those those kind of ways of orientating oneself in the debate between state power and the individual artist have, have largely sort of evaporated uh, so what we do have now is very seems to be a very weak public official public culture which is more interested in actually suppressing uh, conflict between people between different groups at the same time as having to manage the consequences of the fact that people see themselves very much as different groups in society. 
and that's that kind of touches on some of the things Manic is saying about uh, about the consequences, you know, perhaps the inadvertent consequences of a, of a several decades, several decades of multiculturalist policy and, and thinking. But so I think at one level, there is a. It's very clear that at one level, uh, state institutions are very or, or cultural institutions seem very un, incapable of making the argument that everybody should be involved in seeing and debating culture in public, as a public, as, as a notional kind of general public. But the other thing is that actually many of their uh, ways of responding to situations is actually to impose, and this is quite perverse, impose a new kind of orthodoxy, which comes out of the transfer of certain kind of minor minority rhetorics and positions into consensus, mainstream acceptance. So this is why, it, for me, it gets very, very complicated because essentially what, what Manic is talking about when, when it comes to, say, uh, artists in the studio at art college, it's that, say, for example, certain tropes of feminist discourse have become consensus. Certain tropes of uh, black criticism and post-colonial post theory, for example, has become an orthodoxy within certain parts of the academy or large parts of the academy and also have been taken on, taken on as the as the discourse of, of policymaking. So so there is also the fact that there is a kind of quiescent aspect to mainstream cultural organizations that they tacitly admit uh, certain some, some of the assumptions uh, that have come out of uh, a long period of de-censorship opposition, precisely and ironically out of minority groups, um, but have now because now ended up instituting them as a sort of uh, or new orthodoxy which you shouldn't question or transgress, but certainly not debate and question. So, so for 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 many of us, it's very confusing because it's almost like the, the, the things the the poles have reversed. Uh, but really, what's at, what's at the at the center of it for me is that what hasn't changed, and actually what has come back in all this confusion, is that state and quasi-state authorities and official culture have reimposed this kind of dynamic to try and control and suppress or control and contain. And that for me is, that, but because everybody's very kind of unsure about where they stand in that, because it's hard to see which way around these things look actually, and the optics of it are very kind of distorted, then it creates a lot of the, you know, the, the, the kind of uh, situations that we've been discussing. Manek, what do you think about that analysis? Um, I think I largely agree with JJ actually, um, because the kind of co-opting of uh, these ideas, which were certainly seen as initially radical ideas in, in anti-racism or um, in feminism, um, uh, gay and lesbian equality, um, uh, and so forth, you know, um, becomes almost a kind of a, a sort of per a perverse kind of uh, uh, iteration of what's you know they become authoritarian. And um, the, the problem that I think is that. Um, become very vocal voices you know in the sort of amplified voices and uh, and and most artists you know just really want to quietly make work they're not going to be banging on about it publicly they want to make art and then it's there in the public and then it will have that public response then um, but as soon as you know in the process of making art you're starting to uh, or in the process of writing a young adult fiction you're starting to consult sensitivity readers um, you're starting to consult um, your, your you know, peers and so forth you're starting to compromise the work. And I think that's a worrying trend that we're starting to see more and more so. I'd like to ask, what is to be done, Julia? What do you think 
if you were, if you had a wand? One th- my one thing is, is to look at the institutions and all of them, including the in the you know whatever they are, and say, particularly the arts have to be champions of freedom of expression because if they're not, no one's going to do it. So if you want artistic freedom, if you want culture to be um, a vibrant, important place where the difficult question of society can be asked and can be discussed. There's no, you don't have to do it. You can be an artist who doesn't want to do it. But, you know, it is a space that welcomes and can manage debate and discussion. And that is about free expression. And when it comes to arts environments, that's where the artist comes in and is able to um, pr- propose something through through their creativity and imagination that stimulates debate. So I think it's seeing seeing an arts institution as the place where free expression is something you have to think about and you know and it's a loss to society a, a massive loss to society if we start um losing our, the, the, the importance of free expression. It's not easy. Free expression for, for opinion that we all agree with is not worth having. It's where society is sensitive. It's where it's divisive. And so our cultural organisations need to really take it seriously. And I think that that's my sort of one wish. Thank you for listening to Behind the Scenes at the Museum. Do let us know what you thought as well as ideas for future episodes on Twitter at Behind the Scenes. There'll also be links on there and pictures of the works we've discussed. And do subscribe and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Behind the Scenes at the Museum was written and presented by Tiffany Jenkins. The producer was Jack Fillimore. <laughs>